0: Hello, and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello, welcome to another episode. And before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Tromplo, which is a company that was founded by a previous guest on the show and a good friend agnieszka janarek basically what tromplo is is this animal training platform that combines the art and the science of training and applies it to all species so they don't just offer courses on dogs they offer all of these online courses on all a whole range of different animals and basically they have these just fantastic online courses by people that have been on the podcast before really interesting people just from uh Various areas of animal training and and the science behind it. So, for example, they have courses by people like Sarah Owings, who was one of the most popular guests that I've ever had on my podcast. So, I'm sure these courses are going to be hugely thought provoking and a great learning experience. So, be sure to check out Tromplo, which is T R O M P L O. I'll put a link in the description for this episode as well. And be sure to check out their November courses. Today, I'm talking to Simon Gabois. Simon is the director of Canid and Reptile Behavior and Olfaction Research Team at Dalhousie University, Halifax, Nova Scotia. He studies canine olfactory processing for applied purposes, such as wildlife conservation, which we go into more in the podcast. Uh, we also talk about things like, should you reward every time that you click, all of those kind of things i know simon got himself in a bit of a controversy about that stuff so it's really cool to kind of dig into that a little bit more and yeah so let's get started hey simon welcome to the show
1: thank you very much thank you for inviting me
0: well, I was just saying before we started recording that it's really cool to get an opportunity to speak to you because you're one of the few people that is also into dogs and reptiles. That's right. And I love <laughs> I love both of those, those animals, right? Because I think a lot of people aren't keen on reptiles, particularly are they? I think they find them a little bit scary or weird. And also, you don't get a lot of crossover because there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of people doing training with reptiles.
1: That's right. There's not that many. Uh, Indeed, I know only one scientist that does directly. And now obviously his name is escaping me. But yes, you're right. There's not that many people doing it. In fact, there's not that many researchers doing much uh, on behavior, honestly, of reptiles. Um, It it tends to be more and more conservation, which is actually what I do now. Um, Ideally, I'd like to do more uh, reptile behavior, including cognition. Uh, I think there's a group in the UK that's doing this now quite a bit. Um, uh, but yeah, th- it's it's amazing how neglected that group has been compared to birds or mammals or or fish, actually, for that matter. Yeah,
0: I, I think a lot of people see reptiles as being quite unintelligent. What what do you what what are your feelings on that?
1: Uh, I, I think that's very misguided, actually. Uh, we, we know, for instance, that in some large species of lizards, like monitors and others, there is a pretty advanced uh, social cognition going on, right? Uh, complex social behaviors. Um, there's these videos on YouTube that you can find of, uh, of these large lizards coming to humans to be pat, you know, and, and seem to enjoy contact with humans and interacting with them. Um, there's been uh, studies on um, more complex interactions with turtles, between turtles, uh, even play, according to Burkhardt, actually. Um, so, yeah, I think we we have a tendency to not give them um, a lot of credit. And yet the reptilian brain is really the one that precedes the avian a bird and mammalian brain. So we should actually have kind of a a real interest in it, even if the the species that live now are not really a direct ancestry to the birds and mammals we have, they're still giving us an idea of what uh, that brain was before it became a bird brain or before it became a mammalian brain. Um, So from a neurocognitive or neuroscience perspective, Even there, there would be some interest in investigating reptiles a lot more than we do.
0: Yeah, what you just said about the turtles reminds me of, uh, because I really like snakes. I might butcher some of the uh, scientific names, but I think it's philophamnus. You know, there's kind of like small sand snakes. They have loads of like really interesting uh, social behaviors. And it's the same with the Montpellier snakes, isn't it?
1: I don't you know, know like those, they ha- yeah I don't know those. Snakes yeah, very they have well, actually.
0: They have some really interesting snakes uh behaviors like um offering food to the females for example, mm-hmm. which is like you know some of the behaviors is just like way beyond like what you would associate with reptiles. It's like very it blows your mind a little bit. And even when you see some of those like lizards and and snakes again doing like basic training tasks like target training and stuff that's very weird because I think we do just associate these reptiles with being like almost ambush predators, right? They just sit there all day and yeah. you know, not being particularly intelligent.
1: Yes, I and I think um, the other thing that we 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 ought to study in uh, animal psychology in, in ethology and neuroscience um, is also um, it, it's kind of the genesis of the emotional brain of mammals. Um, Michel Cabana at Concordia University in Montreal actually has written at least one, if not two, papers where he, he basically says that it's in the reptile brain that you start seeing what's really necessary to feel emotions um, at a higher level, the way that um, likely, again, avian and mammalian brains can. So it, it, that's another important connection here that you wouldn't... Um, uh be able to study otherwise if you study let's say amphibians or 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 fish so again is that
0: yeah is that to say that reptiles can feel emotion well
1: that's his suggestion he seems to think that um they do at at higher level let's say than amphibians so obviously here i'm talking um uh, salamanders newts frogs uh, toads et cetera, <clears throat> and fish although you know there's some impressive stuff in fish as well i have to say and i think we we keep discovering how evolution in the seas and uh, and lakes uh, uh, has been quite amazing actually as well you know with the elephant nose fish for instance but also the uh, the skates and and, um, and and fish that are considered often quite primitive uh, they actually seem to have you know um Potential, at least, for higher cognitive processing, uh, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, but I still think reptiles have been neglected quite, quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Well, you've you've actually done some like scent work style training with fish, haven't you?
1: With fish, yeah, with... with uh, <laughs>
0: That's so mind-blowing and strange. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, <laughs> fish actually, you know, olfaction, smell is something that works really well in any fluid. So that means air or liquid. Um, and fish are amazingly well-equipped to smell in water, actually. Um, for instance, catfish, right, with the barbs that they, they have, it's full of olfactory and taste receptors as well on those barbs. So they they're... It's one of the main way that they have to investigate their environment. And we forget this because, you know, sniffing or smelling in, in water is not something that seems to be making any sense for us.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm super naive when it comes to fish, but I didn't even really think of fish as being capable of <laughs> like smelling, I guess.
1: And yet. And yet they have, I mean, this is, this is where you, if you look at the fish brain, a huge part of their brain is actually the olfactory bulb, which is one of the big right. important uh, piece of hardware, if you want, for olfaction, even in mammals. So yeah, it's, uh, it, that's where it started actually really early on in the evolution of vertebrates.
0: So I'm guessing that fish actually, you know, in their kind of behavior, they use their sense of smell to kind of find food sources and that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, yes, and also respond to pheromones. In other words, um, oh, it, it okay. has a social and a sexual uh, function as well in terms of finding males, females um, interacting with uh, with each other. And obviously there's the stuff that Carl uh, von Fritsch, one of the three Nobel Prize of um, uh, three Nobel Prizes of uh, Ethology in 1973 uh, documented, which is that concept of the schreckstoff, which is that alarm substance that fish can detect. So if you injure the fish a little bit and put the fish back into the aquarium with his uh, peers, uh, almost immediately all the other fish will disperse away from that fish. And that's basically the idea that there's an alarm substance that they can detect. Um, associated with injury, obviously very likely uh, associated with uh, at least partly a response of the immune system. Um, But yeah, and that seems to be very much something that is uh, literally smelled or detected with olfaction.
0: So, what kind of training did you do with the fish with the uh, olfaction?
1: Oh, in that case, it was uh, it was actually with with um, with baby uh, zebra fish, and uh, actually, this is many years ago now. Uh, it, it was basically just to see if we could do some basic classical conditioning based on odors. So, if there was actually odor discrimination, so you know, fairly fairly simple. Um, and uh and i've always wanted to extend this to reptiles actually going back to reptiles but uh there's been a few things in the way in terms of adding reptiles in captivity in this university i I, i'm not i don't want to suggest that they said no i'm going to simply suggest that it got quickly complicated when we talked about husbandry Um, most of the staff that we have here is either fish bird or mammal and if you do anything else, from vertebrates to amphibians, reptiles, you're kind of on your own. So I never, you know, made that jump yet. Uh, not to say I'll never do it, but uh, eventually I'd like to investigate olfaction. Um, in fact, in snakes, because they they have a amazing sense of smell. Mimi Alpern actually is one of the neuroscientists that has done quite a bit on on um, smelling garter snakes. Um, so we have plenty of them here obviously um <clears throat> so yeah eventually I'd like to do that yeah
0: yeah that sounds really interesting I I have I mean as you can see like some of my enclosures behind me yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of snakes myself so that's part of my my interest in them but they they I'm assuming they kind of process scent differently just based on their kind of like biology than a dog would right because they There seems to be more emphasis on the Jacobson's organ, right?
1: Yeah, so it seems that it's the vomeronasal organ that seems to be important, but that's the interesting thing here, is that we actually don't know how well-equipped they are uh, to capture, let's say, neutral smells or smells that have not been been yet learned or conditioned. Um, At least that's my understanding of the literature, which again is, is very, very small. So we should
0: we we should probably explain that as well to people. Like the Jacobson's organ is what sits in the roof of the mouth, isn't it? And that's what snakes are doing when they flick their tongue out and bring it back into their mouth, right? Kind of capturing sense.
1: So there's actually uh, so for a quick summary, there's actually two uh, olfactory systems. There's the primary, which is the one that is the most important for humans, and there's the secondary that we also call the vomeronasal organ uh, or Jacobson organ which gives you the flamen response that you see in some ungulates like deer, for instance, but cats as well. You know, when cats do the, that kind of, you know, taking in, they, they're getting indeed the smell right at the roof of the palate. And then there's the, what we call the nasopalatine duct in uh, mammals, a little bump right between the front teeth uh, on the palate with uh, uh, basically a, a, a passage, if you want, for the, those molecules to, to, to get in, um, well, directly, actually, uh, or virtually directly into vomeronasal organ. And that's why dogs sometimes will also uh, use their tongue. So they will lick and bring the tongue inside the mouth as if they were actually tasting. A lot of people will say, oh, look, they're mm-hmm. tasting the odor. Well, actually, yes, but it's a little bit more than that. They're really trying to get those molecules directly into the, the VNO or Jacobson's organ.
0: Yeah, I don't think people realize that with dogs. Like people see dogs kind of like licking at like other dogs' wee and that kind of stuff, and they get confused. They don't realize that's what they're doing.
1: Yeah, and it's not to say that they're not tasting uh, uh, tasting as well. It's it's quite possible that that um, uh, that's at play. But it the primary um, reason for that behavior usually is to simply get the molecules directly into the alf- that secondary olfactory system. So with the uh, with the snakes and many lizards, the forked tongue, uh, you know, that is projected out of the mouth, that's exactly that function as well. It's to take those molecules inside the mouth to be processed. Um, So it doesn't work necessarily like this with all reptiles, like turtles, for instance, seem to have an okay sense of smell. In fact, it may again be a lot more important than we think. Nobody's studying this, so we don't really know. Uh, but I suspect, <laughs> I suspect it is, actually.
0: Is the forked tongue, is that something to do with the olfaction?
1: Well, yeah, it does, because it, it's actually their way to have like stereo vision, having the ability to detect a gradient uh, comparing the left and the right. So it's oh, like you okay. and your two nostrils or the dog. We we don't seem to think this matters, but it really does, actually, because if you have a very good sense of smell, which, granted, humans, not that great, but that little distance here is enough for a dog to uh, often get a sense of, well, there's more coming from this way than this way. If not, one thing they can do is also move their head, obviously. So same for snakes. The forked tongue actually allows to detect a gradient um perpendicular to them and if that's not enough they will also move their head to try to figure out if they can pick up some kind of gradient so obviously the idea is to go towards the target um, if you're looking for a prey uh, it's better to not backtrack the, the, the prey but you know go towards the prey if you want to catch it eventually so that's essentially the idea yeah
0: right that makes a lot of sense and before people get angry at us for not talking about dogs (laughs) we should should probably get onto the dog stuff so you you were saying that you you know you've been training dogs to was it to detect the turtles to to help you find them
1: well the very first project actually that we had was with parks canada um kajumkojik national park here in nova scotia sorry and um it's um, it's a park biologist that contacted me and said, look, uh, we are interested in the ribbon snake population. So that's the genus Temnophis that you and I were talking about earlier um, before this started. Uh, very close to the garter snake. Here in Nova Scotia, that species is not doing very well. And we don't really know why. So um, it's a semi-aquatic uh, snake. In fact, it's... Uh, Significantly more aquatic than the garter snake, um, and interestingly, it's extremely cryptic in its environment, it's very difficult to see. Uh, in French, we call it uh, we call it the couleuvre mince. So it's indeed very mince, meaning thin. It's extremely thin. It's like yeah. a pencil. They're not very long. They're about maybe uh, thirty centimeters. You know, about that. The young ones can be about. Yeah, the length of a pencil and about the size of a pencil and you're looking for them in marshy area with with long herb uh grass long grass and they have that kind of uh, uh those two stripes that are literally like ribbons actually that's why the term ribbon uh, is used what
0: well, uh, what subspecies is it simon
1: it's tamenopsis um okay now I always I always uh uh, Soritis and Certalis. So one one of the two is is the ribbon snake. The other one is the garter snake. Um, yeah, Soritis, okay. I think, is garter and Certalis. Am I getting this bad yeah. word now? Anyway, um, so they're from the same genus. So they're actually yeah. very similar. They have the same order, actually.
0: Because um, they're quite pretty little snakes, really, aren't they? The the ribbon snakes.
1: Yes, they're they're very they're very elegant. Actually, they're not as thick, uh, let's say, as the garter snakes.
0: Yeah, because I know that. Uh, people talk about Eastern and Western ribbon snakes, right? That's
1: right. Or but- Northern sometimes. Yeah. So the, yeah. Uh, the subspecies we have here is actually the Eastern one. And sometimes it's, uh, it's uh, I've seen uh, uh, Northeastern, I think, to describe them. But that's usually to describe the population you will find in Maine in the US and here in Nova Scotia. So right. a long time ago, Nova Scotia is almost an island, uh, it's connected to the mainland. In the northwest or north center, I guess, um, but it used to be connected to Maine a long time ago. So there was a this what we call the bridge theory, and then got separated. So there's a number of species of plants and mammals, birds, etc., but reptiles as well that got isolated, and um, the Blanding's turtle and the ribbon snake were two of them. And for some reason, those two species actually don't do very well here in Nova Scotia. In, in our current ecosystem, it's not working out as well for them as it is in Maine on the mainland. So that's kind of a bit of a mystery, and that's why there was an interest in, in looking for them. And the idea at the time was, is it possible that dogs could actually increase our sightings and our captures to process those, uh, those snakes? And the answer was a resounding yes, which is interesting because initially the biologist I was talking to um, in many different provinces here in Canada, one after the other were telling me that we were uh, wasting our time because they spend so much time in water hunting for uh, tadpoles and insects and you know all kinds of things that there's no way that the dogs would be able to track them. Well, I can tell you that to this day, except maybe for coyote tracking that we've done here also in Nova Scotia, it's probably our most successful project so far Uh, in terms of their accuracy and ability at finding the snakes, increasing significantly the number of snakes that are caught or seen during surveys. uh, The dogs have been just amazing. And Including some of the tiny ones that (laughs) it's like looking literally for a needle in a haystack and with smell they can find them fairly easily it's quite quite remarkable
0: yeah that's really cool because i think a lot of people think that dogs can perceive things that are under the water but right but like they, you there are specially trained search and rescue dogs aren't they that find like bodies under the water and all that kind of stuff yeah
1: in fact one of the most amazing feet of uh, two of our dogs so far, Zila, that unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, and Flynn, that I just retired at Christmas. Unfortunately, was to actually find submerged, um, and by submerged I mean uh, over a meter submerged uh, wood turtles um, in water, and including in one case with Flynn in running water. Um, so that that is just you know, beyond imagination, somehow there's some volatiles that come from those turtles at their surface that they can actually pick up. Uh, I wouldn't say fairly easily, but certainly not not anything close to what we actually can do, obviously. Yeah,
0: yeah it's, it's pretty amazing. I imagine that once the dog's found the animal, once it's under the water, it must be quite a task to try and catch it, right?
1: Yeah, well, in, in, one, in one case, uh, it was a team of biologists that were kind of testing us a little bit. Uh, they, they had a, a male wood turtle that had been, uh, uh, I was going to say radio collared, uh, had a transmitter on its carapace. And um, <clears throat> they had a parabolic antenna there, and were saying, we, we kind of know where it is, roughly, like, you know, show us what you can do. And um, so I tell Flynn, my dog, I say, go find. And he starts and he does kind of an interesting beeline within literally five minutes of being in the field. And gets at the edge of this stream, not very wide, maybe two meters, two meter and a half, and looks down right at his feet. And there's running water right there. And I look and it's about a meter, meter and a half deep. At first I see nothing and he's barking at the water. And I'm thinking, well, this is strange. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a disaster. I mean, it makes no sense. There's no way, uh, considering the current that we have there, that he was able to pick up anything. And then I move my head left and right. And suddenly, without the reflection of the sun, on a specific angle, I see that carapace underwater. And I go like, oh, my God, that's incredible. Yep, there there you go. There was a wood turtle right there.
0: That's one of the... That's one of the biggest lessons people always say with tracking and anything that involves a dog's nose is one of the biggest challenges we have is trusting the dog, right? Like often that's why there's so much skill from the handler's perspective because the handler always wants to go, no, it can't be that way, you know, and guide the dog away.
1: Absolutely. In fact, we, we keep doing this all the time. I, I, can, I can tell you a number of stories on this. Well, another one is um, uh, my dog, Zila, uh border collie mix but mostly border collie uh, gets in a little pond one day and start turning in circles and and a tight a fairly tight circle about maybe at most two meter radius and uh, i get in the water with my waders right to the, the point where it's about to start spilling into uh, into my waders and uh, i have a stick and in the middle of where she's uh you know circling I, I tapped the bottom of that pond, and then suddenly, talk, 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 and there you go. I mean, that was a wood turtle that was right there. Uh, again, I, I can't, can't believe that, that she was able to do this. As for challenging how people think, um, it, it's true. It's tough to trust them. Once uh, in the field with ribbon snakes, uh, Zila was, and uh, another dog actually, Sable, both of them were pulling us towards the woods. Ribbon snakes at that time of year, and it was right smack in the middle of July on a very hot day. Technically, are in the water uh, or very close to the water. So the biologist with me that were at the time, the, the ribbon snake specialists, are looking at me like, "No, okay, let's uh, let's not waste our time." And um, I said, well, actually, I'm not sure we're wasting our time here. And they say, well, I'm assuming she's after the scent of a deer or something. I said, well, I don't think so, because she's not trained for this, and usually she's quite focused. So I said, why don't we just humor her and just follow her? So we followed Zila. She took the lead, and, and Sable, the other dog, looked like uh, she was also confirming that something was there. And then after a maybe 20-minute walk in the woods, uh, we end up in, uh, hitting another pond nobody knew it was even there and then we realized uh, not right away but after investigating this a little bit further that quite often during the day those snakes would actually go through the woods to go from one hunting ground to the other
0: oh wow something
1: that that they had not really considered they thought they were very localized in their hunting activities and uh, no, sometimes they decide they'll go at the, the pond, uh, you know, half a kilometer away, just to see if there's anything better to hunt. Um, another am- amazing case was when Zila once uh, pulled us towards uh, um, uh, saltwater, the cove, uh, as we were looking for wood turtles. And when the biologist, exactly same kind of setup or story. Uh, saw her do that. He said, no, I mean, wood turtles are freshwater turtles. We're wasting our time. Let's not go there. I said, well, I'm just curious to see what this is about. And I was honestly not thinking wood turtle myself. And I just followed Zila. It wasn't that far anyway. She gets right at the edge of the water, that little cove. And there you go. There was a sea, uh, not a sea turtle, sorry, a wood turtle right there in the salt water. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, you know, sometimes th- this is why I don't I, this is why I call them our research assistants. They are our, our canine research assistants because we, we've we learned so much from them over the years, including serious challenges on our own assumptions about what what reality is, what it's supposed to be like. I mean, they, they clearly know better at some levels. So there you go.
0: Yeah. I wanted to get to that actually. You know, what kind of uh, information did you find out what, what surprised you when you started using the dogs to find the snakes and the turtles?
1: Well, to be honest, it's, it's, uh, it's always full of surprise. And that's why I like doing that work. Sometimes I'm amazed at how good they are at doing what they do, but I have to admit, sometimes I'm surprised also that we're not getting the results we're expecting. There are things that have been challenging. I'm not trying to say they're amazing at everything. Uh, some dogs are also very specialized. Flynn, it was always the wood turtles more than anything else. Uh, he wasn't very good at anything else. Uh, I don't know why. I think he got in his head this is what I do. <laughs> I'm a wood turtle guy. Don't bother me. He just me
0: prefers with- turtles. <laughs> yeah,
1: just don't bother me with those snakes. That's ridiculous.
0: Uh, I think a lot of people have empathize with that.
1: <laughs> other dogs like Zila are uh, generalists. They'll she would do almost anything that we threw at her and did it very well um but yeah no sometimes we we had some failures we had some projects didn't go so well so for instance looking for um turtle nests um in order to um uh find new nests or collect the eggs for head start programs that ended up not working out so well it's very hard for the dogs um, to find the nests, there's a number of reasons for this, we think. Uh, one of them uh, is that um, it seems that even predators don't find nests of turtles very easily beyond a zone of about a time zone of about 48 hours before after, or I should say, after the, the eggs have been laid, or just before emergence when the babies are coming out. Uh, from underground, although usually it 's not very very deep in the ground, and one of my theories is that I think the eggs have this kind of olfactory um, camouflage they they smell like the earth because if you take an egg that 's been collected and put in um, egg cartons for a head start program where they 're kept uh, over the summer you know to let the young hatch and then they're brought back into the into the field. Um, even if they've been in that kind of artificial substrate, the eggs still smell like earth. They smell earthy.
0: Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah. There, has there been anything done on that? Any kind of research? No,
1: as far as I know, absolutely none.
0: And Because uh, it would make sense, wouldn't it, as like an evolutionary adaptation?
1: And especially since those turtles don't dig very deep at all. And that's both the wood turtles and the Blanding's turtles. We're talking a few inches. Um, Usually, if we dig to find the eggs, it it doesn't take very long. So you would think that raccoons, um, uh, skunks, especially around here, and and probably also foxes would find them very easily, and it's just not the case. So same for the dogs. The dogs have a very hard time, Um, you know, the the eggs are laid usually mid-June. And they emerge at the end of August, beginning of September. But during those two and a half months, there's relatively little predation. And if there's any predation on the nests, it's usually um, when the females are laying or very soon after. In fact, some raccoons are getting really smart. They just park themselves on the beach of lakes and stuff and wait for the females to lay the eggs. And as soon as they're done, they go in there and start having a little snack.
0: So, yeah. Have you found... Have you found that with any other type of eggs or just the turtle eggs? Uh
1: just with the troll eggs. We never tested with with other species, but that's a good question. I don't know. It could be different with snakes, um, as they also lay sometimes uh well underground, but not necessarily with they don't necessarily bury the eggs. Uh, uh I'm not talking about viviparous species here, obviously. So yeah, that, that's a good question. I don't know about, about the snakes.
0: Yeah, I just, well, I just meant any species like bird eggs or anything like that as well.
1: Right. Uh, well, um, birds, yes, that's an interesting one. That's a different type of egg, obviously, because it's, it's actually a hard shell as opposed to reptiles where it's quite porous and, and soft. It's harder to see that volatiles would actually come out, although we, we know they can. In fact, there's even evidence now that even the birds themselves, uh, even quails, can actually pick up some of volatiles from the egg, informing them about the sex of the chicks. So that's amazing. Oh, wow. So even if birds can do this, it's it's quite remarkable. So dogs can probably do it.
0: Right. And what kind of training process did you go through to teach the dogs to find the snakes and the turtles and that kind of thing?
1: Well <laughs> that that is the other part of the mystery. Um, when you do field work with conservation canines, um Sometimes you really have to drill into them what the target order is, because they're maybe just not interested in it, or they don't seem to understand their relevance, or it, it's hard to tell. Other times, it just falls into places almost naturally. So to give you an example, when we started doing wood turtles, I think I trained Zila for about three months in a lab, deployed her in the field. She was doing great right away. About a year later, I get Flynn. I bring Flynn in the field without any training. Within about 15 minutes of watching Zila do the work, he kind of looked at us and went, huh, you're interested in these things, These things, are you? Fine, I'll find some for you. And then <laughs> that day, he actually surpassed Zila in number of turtles found. So he looked wow. right there by observation, just watching her doing it, And seeing her getting all the praise and the the, the big party when she would find a turtle, he thought, I want to be part of this. And he was finding turtle. And since then, he's been our turtle guy.
0: That's really interesting as well, because I think a lot of people think that dogs aren't very good observational learners. You know, that's what I was always taught.
1: Uh, and I think we're totally wrong about this. In fact, it's interesting because this term, um, I have an honor student that will look into this. It, it's more than that is we, we have some very strange ways of thinking about dogs and reinforcement, including this idea that only the clicker will work or that just food by itself, or, uh, you know, you know, it kind of really strange ideas that if you look at the history of animal training really comes from, uh, historically times when we uh, would train animals that are not terribly sensitive to social reinforcement and especially not from another species like humans for instance so rats pigeons chickens Um, dogs are fantastically sensitive to verbal and social reinforcement and sometimes that's all you need uh, really uh, for them to be happy and uh, you know to do stuff for you and I think Between dogs, uh, you have that observational learning happening, uh, and and it becomes a kind of a teamwork kind of thing as well, which is extremely self-reinforcing as well. Um, So yeah, I think we we oversimplified dogs way too much, and in training, I think there's so many things we could do differently, and we don't dare because you know historically. We've done it a certain way and we stick stick with that.
0: Well, yeah, I definitely wanna wanna talk about this topic as well because I mean that's I think the majority of people that listen to this podcast are really interested in dog training. Um, I've I've noticed though, I think what you're talking about there with the scent work stuff, particularly, you know, like with scent work and tracking, anything that, that involves a dog's nose, because oftentimes, for example, tracking is a really good kind of example for this we start off by laying food along the track and then phase the food out. But what I find is there comes a point where the dog starts skipping the food because they seem to be having more fun just tracking, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a really good indication for us. Okay, we just could take the food up. But I think there's something, as you put it, like self-rewarding about the dog using its nose. And actually, that's... A task that the dog really enjoys doing, and in those kind of instances, it's very easy to get rid of food. I think. Oh, it seems uh,
1: you know absolutely, and in fact, in the field work that I do, um, you know, sometimes trainers that come with 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 me um, uh, that visit Nova Scotia are always surprised to see I don't have a clicker in my hands. I don't have a a pouch of uh, uh, kibbles. I do sometimes, but it's it. Most of the time, I forget to even use it. Because I don't have to. Um, the, the dogs are so much into it, they don't even stop to uh, to look at me when I click, or or sometimes when I put my hand in the, the food pouch, they, they 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 ignore me. They just they are too focused on what they're doing. That's oh, let's do that later. It's fine. <laughs> right now I I'm sniffing the ground and all that kind of stuff.
0: So they're just suitably reinforced by the activity, right? They just love doing that and you know, they they don't necessarily need anything else.
1: Look, I've spent with Zila literally uh, months never reinforcing her once in the field with food clicker or whatever. Verbal praise, yes. But even that sometimes, you know, we would get too busy, too excited, too focused, too out of time, too whatever. And she would stand there and just wait for, you know, uh, us being done processing that animal so she could move on to the next one. Um, it. it I, I never Rob, saw any sign of extinction or, you know, uh, yeah. loss of motivation. Uh, never. I mean, some dogs yeah. maybe, uh, but not the ones I select usually for the field work.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think the selection is quite important, yeah. actually, because, I mean, Rob Hewings, who, I don't know if, do you know Rob hewings
1: yeah, I know his name. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah. He, yeah, um, he tells us really, he, I, he said something really funny last time I was talking to him where he was saying that. When he had the police spaniels, they were always working, you know. And they were—they tr- had been trying to find a bomb in his house for the last eight years, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like they just want to keep going, you know. There's no, uh, you know, they just—that is so reinforcing for them to just be looking for stuff. Well, uh, and it, it was a bit. It was a bit different with some of the you know if you take a different breed that maybe hasn't been bred to do that it might be a different story right but with with the ones that as you said you know are selected for this work they're so reinforced by it they just want to do it whether you you know whether you want them to or not essentially
1: and and in Great Britain, you uh, you, um, uh, you guys use these uh, cocker spaniels and Springer spaniels that are from working lions. That they're nuts. I mean, really, that that's what they do. And yeah, um,
0: they're just. You're they're, all right, though.
1: Yeah, they're they're obsessed with the work. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's um, you know, and and there's some breeds. In one of our publications, we call them the quote unquote dopamine breeds. But there's some breeds that fit that kind of. Uh, almost obsessive compulsive type of behaviour while working. And they make very good working dogs actually, maybe not pets so much, but uh, Malinois are like that, Um, Border Collies, potentially uh, Parsons, uh, Parson Terriers and and Jack Russells if they were easier to train, but they're a little bit more like cats, those guys, right? Terriers. what,
0: what (laughs) What do you mean when you say dopamine breeds? What does that mean?
1: Well, it's based on a paper that was published in the early 90s uh, by two veterinarians, Aarons and Shoemaker, um, that suggested that there were some significant differences in level of dopamines between dog breeds. And the ones that typically we have a tendency to identify as uh, highly active, if not hyperactive, maybe a little bit having a tendency to be obsessive-compulsive, like border collies, for instance, seem to have much higher levels of dopamine available to them than breeds like, for instance, Newfoundlanders um, that are you know much more calm and aloof and all that. And this is an interesting idea that's consistent with what we know in neuroscience, even at the personality level, the, at least temperament, this idea that between you and I, there's probably also differences in uh, basal um, um, or baseline, I should say, uh, dopamine levels that contribute to who you are, who I am, and how different we are. Uh, same for all kinds of other neurotransmitters. But the, the issue with dopamine is that it actually very much influences how rewarding activities are, how focused you are when you work. So, um, and not to mention, actually, that uh, motor activity as well, because it's one of the most important neurotransmitter in the motor system. Um, so that paper, when it came out, I was... My first year of PhD, actually, I remember, had uh, made a huge impression on me. At the time, I was working with wolves, actually, and I didn't see right away the relevance to what I was doing. It's only later that I remembered it. Um, it's actually cited in uh, Ray Coppinger's uh, first book, uh, Dogs, uh, in the first chapter, if I remember well. And I remember thinking then, uh, when I start working with dogs, that's interesting because a lot of the dogs we end up selecting for work are uh, – uh In those dopamine breeds, and not just that, but they if they they were not identified by Aarons and shoemaker, they seem to fit into that pattern you know again hyperactive uh, focused a bit obsessive um i mean neurotic in some ways because a lot of the breeds I mentioned are a little bit nuts, like I said, but in a good way again, if you manage to channel and to focus that energy, they're amazing dogs um again maybe, Probably not necessarily great pets, um, especially if they are used, uh, if, if you don't let them spend that, some of that energy, but otherwise wonderful working dogs.
0: It, it makes sense, right? That people would kind of inadvertently breed dogs that you know, have those kind of things because they see visibly that those dogs are better at working, right? Like I remember seeing something about Labradors being basically constantly hungry. Right, Right, which which affects their food drive, which some people question. Then, well, is that ethical? Right to have a dog that is actually hungry all of the time. Yeah, but it it makes them easier to train because it's really easy to use food.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, It's hard to tell if how inadvertently we've done this, if how much it was on purpose, but in selective breeding. In this kind of artificial selection, I mean, it is quite possible that the the, the drive of working dogs, whatever that means, their work ethics, etc., was selected for. Is it one gene, many genes? But some of them actually had something to do with the dopaminergic system of the brain. Yeah, it's quite likely that happened. Um, not that we were targeting for those specific genes because we didn't know about them, but clearly we were looking for the the, the the traits right, that were associated with a good training dog, a dog that's focused as energy, doesn't lose motivation. You know, Because that's one of the things. Many people ask me, why don't you use bloodhounds? I mean, that's one of the most common questions that I'm asked usually. Why don't you use bloodhounds? They have the hardware, right? Yes, they do. They have the hardware, but I always say they don't have the software. So what happens (laughs)
0: is—that's a great way of putting it—they
1: they 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 lose their motivation very quickly. We've got two, I think, over the last fifteen years in the lab, uh, and you know after an hour of work they're done. Uh, I've never seen the persistence that I've seen in Zila, my border collie, or actually um, my current uh, personal superstar is is actually a. a red golden retriever now this is not All a regular right. golden retriever it's the red golden so it, it's uh i think in the uk you call them red golden sometimes but you also, also call them irish, um, irish goldens um they they look right. something like a mix between a um a golden retriever and a um irish setter basically so it's a lean golden uh same eyes same same head very red coat um very, yeah, very lean, open coat, which actually for field work is better, honestly. Um, high energy. I mean, crazy. In fact, the dog I have now, Ivy, is probably more energetic and intense than most of the border collies I've had over the years.
0: Yeah. I wonder if bloodhounds used to have more energy to work. Because I think that one of the problems with a lot of the breeds in modern times is they're not really being bred to work anymore and you lose a lot of the working traits. Yeah. But it, it is interesting because it raises this question, you know, could you start to breed more work well you could, couldn't you? You could start to breed more working temperament or however you want to characterize it. Back into the Bloodhounds, and you could give them the software as well as the hardware. Yeah.
1: Well, it, it looks like that's what happened actually with the, the 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 Red Golden Retrievers. They they um. It's hunters that wanted a dog that had the, uh, you know. Well, first of all, I think one of the one of the initial idea was to have them get them to look more like what they used to look like hundred years ago. That was one of the goals. But then a lot of the people that were into that kind of look, I think, were also hunters. And they wanted that dog with a strong drive, you know, strong focus and motivation. Um, so yes, I think obviously um, people that you know uh, like working lines of working breeds, uh, yeah, explicitly often actually are looking for some of those characteristics. And there you go, we 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 tend to select this kind of temperament basically.
0: I, I saw that you'd also spoken about. Like the role of scent work in maybe rehabilitating dogs that kind of have these issues with aggression and reactivity, what kind of what are, you, what are your thoughts there? Because I was talking to um, Kathy Murphy and she feels very strongly. She had she's a neuroscientist and she had experiences with her own dog where she felt like scent work had actually made a really like profound difference with her dogs, with her well just with her dog's kind of well being. What were your thoughts on that?
1: yes i think i think uh i think it's true although i i here i have a few cautionary notes as well i think there's a trend right now to getting a little bit nuts on the uh, olfactory enrichment and all that kind of stuff especially in shelters i think that can end up backfiring just to be clear and the reason i say this is i think that in some cases we because we are such a Microsmatic species, in other words, a species that doesn't use smell very well. And well, let's put it this way: we suck at it. Um, <laughs> we, we, we don't have a very good olfactory system at all. We 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 tend to overdo it, right? So people put essential oil, three or four different ones in the enclosure, that kind of stuff, and it's like, then you may as well, uh, to use an analogy, uh, play at full volume uh, some. Uh, Mozart, some reggae, some hard rock, and some uh, some disco at the same time. Uh, it, it's it, yeah, that's not enrichment. That's actually it's just
0: overwhelming.
1: That's just overwhelming. It's it's more stressful than anything else. But I think what we don't do enough of is let them engage in normal foraging behavior and olfaction. I mean, one of the big use of the nose for most predators, is to find your meal, is to find your prey, is to is, is for eating eventually. And, you know, stupidly, actually, one of the best activity is to go walk your dog and let him or her sniff its environment at its own rhythm it, it's, and change the, that environment. So walk elsewhere uh, once in a while. That's the best thing you can do. Uh, you know, and I'm not. I'm not against nose work. I'm just saying that it, it, it to convince yourself that you have to do these things to engage the olfactory system is a little bit misguided, because a, a completely natural, ordinary walk in the woods, uh, on or off lead, will will do exactly the same thing. And the dog then yeah. can choose what what they want to look for, if yeah, if at all, actually, right?
0: I think sometimes we can almost be a bit elitist, can't we, about this? Like, you know, thinking that scent work is better than going on a walk or or whatever. But even just, like scattering food right like that's a really simple way of doing it you know just throwing some food out
1: you say elitist it's funny I I think yeah I think it's almost it's very anthropocentric and very egocentric I mean it's for our own pleasure I mean if you want to do scent work and nose work for um, as an activity with your dog I think it's a great idea go ahead do it It, there's nothing wrong with it as long as the dog is enjoying it Um, and I can totally see why hyperactive dogs and, and neurotic dogs would benefit from it absolutely go for it but then to say that that's the way to do it and the only way or the only way that will be fulfilling for the dog, uh, no, I, I have I have to be a little bit in disagreement with that idea. Um, but yes, it's it's clear that dogs like using their nose, most of them. Um, so, you know, Sometimes border collies and sighthounds or dogs are very visual in nature because of what they were bred to do. Sometimes you have to teach them they have a nose and teach them a little bit how yeah. to use it. But we have a lot of border collies in my lab because, uh, you know, we opened the lab to uh, people, people that in the community that want to volunteer their dogs. And they uh, obviously, if you do that, the main breed you'll find is border collies because people just say, please, please take my dog for a, a day or two a week, <laughs> give him a job and, you know, and it's, it's free daycare as well for them. Um, and these dogs are um, great worker. They're very persistent, um, and uh, but at the end of the day, they'll be they'll be tired. You know, the, the owners will say they love doing their work. They get excited when they get on campus, but when they come back home, they 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 go directly to sleep. You know, they, they they're spent, um, and uh, they often say, you know, it's funny because I never noticed my dog sniffing, and now that's been working in your lab for a few weeks, it sniffs everything all the time. So oh, wow. yeah, some breeds you, you may have to remind them that the nose actually has a function and and can do something. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very natural behavior, and um, a lot of dogs maybe in environments that are a little bit too predictable uh, may be bored. Like you know, in cities where the walk is always the same, you know, it's always the same uh, the same block that you walk, and it's always well, the same odors and everything.
0: I think some of the problem, though, is with people that have dogs that are actually aggressive or have issues, you know, the walk is already a stressful event, right? Because the dog is so worried they're going to come across people or other dogs, which they find really stressful, that maybe they're not really getting the opportunity to, you know, use their nose as you would like. And then maybe more structured training. That's why it's so effective, because they're doing it outside of a context that the dog finds really stressful.
1: Well, and there's no doubt if you do nose work, uh, um, any kind of scent work, actually based on training. Indeed, the training part is not something to to minimize um, as a, an important part in all this. And not to mention, like I said early on, the, the bond with you know between you and the dog. Um, so, no, I agree. Um, uh, you know, it, it's. Uh, it it's it's a it's a great it's a great activity and honestly for for people's own mental health i think it's good as well right i mean uh, taking a walk yes but also engaging in some activities with your dog i think that's 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 a great thing i think that's more more people should do it
0: <laughs> yeah there is kind of an argument that you can make that almost doing anything with the dog is probably going to be a positive thing right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) You know, I've certainly found that with my clients that sometimes, you know, if I'm working with a client that, say, has a fearful dog or something like that, if I get them to do anything, even if it's like completely unrelated to what we're working on, it can actually help the process because they're getting a a bit more interaction with the dog. You know, they're building a bit more relationship, the dog's getting a bit more stimulation, even if it's like completely unrelated to to the issue that we're there for.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, we we've created uh, an animal that is extremely I was going to say codependent. I wouldn't actually that's that's not really accurate, but it it certainly was bred to be to be attentive to humans and and wanting to spend time with humans. And then yet somehow in our society, sometimes we don't let them have that privilege. Um, which which you know is is really unfortunate. And that's why we had to invent those uh those doggy daycares. Uh, uh so they can actually get keep being stimulated but yeah it's kind of sad that we we probably don't spend enough time with our dogs unfortunately
0: right yeah so so before we wrap up simon it, you have to tell us why you hate clickers so much
1: <laughs> i don't actually we look i th- this is a <laughs> This is a bit. This is a bit of a. It, it's a bit of a long story. I won't get into details of it. I, I don't actually hate the clicker. We use it in the lab all the time. In fact, with the biomedical detection dogs that we have, uh, the clicker is part of the procedure. It has been for many, many years. Uh, maybe not right from the start, but well, yeah, no, actually, right from the start of using the biomedical um, uh, projects with the biomedical projects. Yeah, we've used the clicker right from the start. Um, I have absolutely nothing against the secondary reinforcer as a concept. Um, In fact, I think, um, uh, especially if you need a lot of uh, spatial and and temporal precision, it's a great tool. What I don't agree with is the idea that it's the only way. Look, I've had dog trainers in the past tell me, well, if you don't use the clicker, you must be doing punitive or coercive stuff. What? I mean, what about treating with food? I mean, there's still a lot of trainers that do this very successfully. And like we discussed earlier, uh, there's a bunch of papers, two or three now in the last few years, uh, including one, uh, it's either out or will be out soon, uh, by the group in Budapest, showing that actually verbal praise or, um, or just padding, that was actually one from the, um, padding was uh, from the uh, Clive Wynn's lab, I think, if I remember well um is good enough actually to uh, as a reward for dogs in training. So we've got in in our mind that it has to be done a certain way when it really doesn't have to be. And then we we kind of created all these kinds of rules saying well science says this and and that's how it works when
0: actually so give give us an example.
1: Well <laughs> Just to walk into yeah, just just to walk into a controversy. There, um, there are, are people that will argue with you ad nauseum that you can't use a clicker without always follow that secondary influencer with a primary. Actually, there is a long historical literature that contradicts this very very strongly. Um, now, not to say that. You know if you want to pair them uh, in a one to one ratio all the time, go ahead. That's not the issue. The issue is the idea that if you stop doing this, you will immediately see an extinction of the behavior or at least a reduction of that behavior. Actually, there's data suggesting exactly the opposite. it's It's like intermittent reinforcement you know, that Skinner worked on so much, showing that actually in some cases, with some schedules, with some tasks, it, it has the opposite effect. In other words, it does actually increase the behavior, makes makes it more resistant to extinction. The very first paper on this clicker followed by food thing not being an absolute was Budzelski in 1938. So, this is a long time ago. So that, that's why it always makes me laugh when some people, including actually a few scientists, which I find really surprising because they should know the literature, will say, well, Pavlov, Skinner knew that, that you can't you know, unpair those two things without consequences. Well, OK, first of all, Pavlov, I believe, died in 1936. So he may not have seen Bojelski's 1938 paper. <laughs> First of all, second of all, I haven't found ever anything clear uh, on on Skinner. Knowing that, um, no, I don't. Um, and before Skinner died, that's when most of the papers on this actually were uh, published. So I'm looking behind me because I was wondering if I actually had that book so I could actually show it to you. I have it. It's at, It's in my study at home, I believe. Um, but uh, there's a book. What, by what book White. is that? It's a book by Wike, uh, W-I-K-E, um, uh, called Secondary Reinforcers, I believe. And it's a collection of articles. And there's about a dozen of them in that book that actually describe situations where the uh, non-1-to-1 pairing of secondary to primary reinforcer is not necessary. So, uh, you know, I don't know where that myth Came from, and yet I'm accused of creating a myth here, which I find really ironic. But anyway, <laughs> okay. sometimes, let's
0: the, yeah. Let's let's break that down a, a little bit. Then, would you say that not doing the one to one ratio has any advantage over doing the one to one ratio?
1: Not necessarily. Uh, and I or never. you just saying it's kind of equal to. I think in some cases, if you look at the neuroscience of it, and that, that's the other part of the literature, which I mistakenly initially referred to first, because to me, that's more compelling as, as a neuroscientist, at least partially. But apparently, that was the wrong way. I should right away have insisted on the early papers that were showing this from behaviorists uh, during the Skinnerian years. But anyway, um, I would say... Um, I would say it depends. Uh, I think in some cases, especially if you're training a dog with distance, the idea that you can present a secondary and you don't have to get the, the dog to come back to you or you having to get to the dogs, uh, the dog to actually give the the primary is kind of cool. Uh, you know, interesting in Karen Pryor's book. Uh, there is actually a mention of such a situation where you deliver uh, the, the secondary reinforcer, and it's not followed by the primary. But you see how twisted this gets is now that people describe a situation like this by saying, well, it's not a secondary enforcer, then it's a marker. <laughs> what? <laughs> what, what, what yeah, is just... the, why is the dog actually supposed to know the difference between the two? What the secondary reinforcer does, call it marker or whatever you want, is say, good, that was it. This may or may not be followed by a reinforcer, by a primary. Right. That's it. And the way the brain works, if you look at Panxap's theory with the seeking system or Barrage's theory with the wanting system, the brain works that way. The brain likes to know that it may or may not, but may get a reinforcer and, and learns very well in that kind of situation. And somehow people decided very quickly that, no, 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 if that happens too often or for too long, you will have extinction of behavior. Well, not necessarily. As we discussed early uh, in, this, uh, in this discussion, sometimes things can be self-reinforcing. And they are because they may be actually rarely followed by a very small or a very big reward. After a while, the brain simply gets engaged in the activity without depending on rewards. And the advantage, not unlike intermittent reinforcement, is that it does actually prevent um, extinction of behavior. It makes the behavior more resistant
0: uh, but you have to get the balance right, right? You know, like if if you if you don't reinforce for a prolonged period of time, you are going to get extinction. But as long as you're in that intermittent, right? Like you're you're awarding enough to, to to keep what is there there. Right, like that's intermittent, right? Yeah. As opposed to just no reinforcement at all.
1: Well, yes, but then, then, uh, like we we have to define what we mean. Well, first of all, first of all, if you go, if you go, let, let's drop the secondary reinforcer stuff. If you go into intermittent reinforcement schedules of reinforcement of some sort, the the, the some people will say it doesn't work. I tried. Uh, I guarantee you, it's like my students. What they've done, it went too fast. You have to be yeah, very definitely. slow, very progressive, in how you you start you know, uh, increasing the interval or, um, or the ratio. That's, that's clear. That's the most common mistake. You have to go very, very slow. Um, the, I think the other mistake is to, is to think that dogs will stop responding um, when the training is well established. None of this should be done until the dog knows exactly what it's doing and what it's expected to do. So obviously you don't do this, do this in early training. You do this when the task has been well acquired, then you can start doing that. And when you say eventually you'll have extinction, yes and no, we forget that there's instances of pigeons peaking, pecking 3,000 times on a touch screen before being reinforced. And continuing to give that response 3,000 times, that's remarkable. So this idea that those behaviors will extinguish quickly, no, not necessarily. And actually, sometimes they become self-reinforcing, as we discussed early on, in other ways as well, which makes really the clicking or the the giving the, the kibbles almost irrelevant, you know, in a lot of training with uh, with dogs that do uh, assistance biomedical stuff, the field work I do, or working with sheep dogs, it, it's there's very little primary reinforcers delivered in, in in with many many of those those kinds of tasks.
0: The sheep dog stuff you said.
1: Well, it does some field work as well. Like I said yeah. earlier, I, I
0: a lot of this is self rewarding though, isn't it?
1: That's right. Well, but <laughs> you know, I mean it's it's obviously, I mean, there's something that becomes eventually self-rewarding, but but again, if you if you if you take the argument that I can never stop clicking or delivering the primary reinforcer, well, no. Um there are many instances of dogs continuing to do their work. Uh, it, partly because oh, it's definitely. innate sometimes, yeah. absolutely, but yeah. certainly because it's self-reinforcing as well.
0: Like if we think about behaviorism, if a behavior continues or increases, we know that reinforcement is coming from somewhere.
1: Yes, but but we have to be careful because in, in behaviorist theories, and this is why I'm not a behaviorist. I'm not, I'm not a cognitivist either, by the way, but um, we have a tendency to focus in behaviorist theory too much on what we call um uh, in um, extrinsic motivations. In neuroscience, and it's really, much, uh, I think, neuroscience that has helped us understand this, there's such a thing as incentive uh, motivation or in, intrinsic motivation. In fact, it's a Skinnerian, it's, it's Hull, that came up with this in the 50s, I believe, that realized that, yeah, there's such a thing as extrinsic motivation, but there's also intrinsic motivation. And you can build that intrinsic motivation um, with, with animals, even rats, uh, and pigeons. Um, is that,
0: is is that like the same kind of thing as self rewarding? Would that be the same? It,
1: it, yeah, it's, it's kind of, kind of the same idea. There are situations where indeed a, a, a behavior will be, uh, uh, will persist despite not being reinforced. Uh, one
0: of the things with the clicker that strikes me is I've found as I've become more experienced, you know, uh, you know, I've gone further along my kind of dog training journey you get to a point where you know when you can break rules. Do you know what I mean? Like you can know when you can start uh, messing with it a little bit. And some of these rules are seem to be really focused on when people are starting out, you know, like when they're, they're just starting out. And, you know, you said yourself that when you go to intermittent, the, people make, make the mistake all of the time of going too quickly. And I wonder if this you know, one-to-one ratio on the clicker is really just a guideline for beginners. Sure. Stick to one-to-one. It's, you're not going to screw it up as easily. Kind of thing, Absolutely. You
1: know? <laughs> no, no it's, it's true. I mean, I've had some people sometimes when we have this debate say, well, yeah, but there's no way I can explain this to my dog owners. I said, no, no. I never said you should. That, that's not the idea. If we're having a theoretical debate, because that's how it started, without getting into the history of how it started. Uh, that, that's that's a, 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 an actual different thing here. I mean, it's, it's – uh, but, but the theoretical debate is that, yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it, it's not an absolute. And, and again, let's be clear. I have nothing against the quicker. We use it in my lab. We have for, I think, seven or eight years when we start doing the biomedical stuff. In the field, honestly, I don't have a hand free. I don't I have a GPS in his hand. I have like I have equipment. I have the
0: I just tend to use verbal markers well, you it, know, 99% of the time.
1: I, and that too, I do a lot of uh, tongue uh, clicks and uh, you know just to get the attention yeah. of the dog. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of coded uh, uh, as well. I mean uh, I have different type of clicks as well. Um, uh-huh. Sometimes I have to be silent when we approach uh, when we track coyotes uh, and approach dens. Um, when there may be some pups, uh, yeah, I, I, we, we are as silent as possible, so I don't make any noise.
0: It's um, interesting though, Simon, because I think that some people assume when you start talking about that, that it's almost, they're assuming that your position is the clicker is kind of obsolete, but it, actually what you're saying is, it's just situation by situation and the clicker isn't useless. It's not something we just kind of put in the drawer and forget about it's actually, it's just dependent it, it, on what you're trying to achieve right
1: so, so this, this whole thing started about two uh, in 2014 so almost five years ago now not once not once in all the debates i've had on facebook on this will you find me say that the clicker is obsolete or that you shouldn't use the clicker like i said i've been using it for longer than this longer than the, when this debate started uh, you know seven eight years ago so yeah i i'm not saying don't use it um you know verbal markers are they as good yeah I, I probably i mean it it's let's let's remember that it's 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 a gadget it's a gizmo um, can you have the, the the same effect by doing a click with your mouth or absolutely i mean look the 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 going back to buski nineteen thirty eight the idea of a click. Uh, is is simply this idea that, by the way, accidentally, actually, initially, the, the magazine in the Skinner box for the pigeon uh, was empty. Uh, and the researcher didn't notice that. And the magazine would come down, and while coming down, when the right answer was given, would do a click sound, right? And uh, then he realized, oops, uh, that magazine was not filled with food. How is it that the pigeon is still responding? And then he realized that the click by itself was enough to actually get the pigeon to respond. Note in the history of this one example that started the whole thing in the the 30s, that actually we're talking about the click by its own self being able to reinforce the pigeon without the primary following. So <laughs> it's, it's almost absurd that people would say and say, well, everybody has known forever that that can't happen because that's how it was discovered, that it could actually <laughs> be reinforcing love it. by itself.
0: I love it. Well, Simon, let's, let's wrap it up there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic story to end on. Where where can people find out more about your work and you know all of the stuff that you do?
1: Well, we have two. Uh, we have a few Facebook presence. Uh, well, my personal page is probably not the, the the best for this. We have we have the, the one is called the Canine uh, sorry Canid and Reptile Behavior and Olfaction Team. And the other one is same name, except instead of being team is um, lab. One is a group. The other one is a page. Don't ask me which one is which. But anyway, so one you have to ask to get let be, uh, get, get in the other one. You can just join by yourself. Um, there is a Twitter account as well, which I believe is called Dal Canines. I hope I'm right about this. Um, or you can contact me directly, uh, I have a webpage, if you just look at uh, simon.gadbois.org, uh, simongadebois.org, you will find it by my academic page actually, and there's information about what we do there, and you're welcome to contact me anytime, join on Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, etc.
0: yeah. All right, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me for a podcast. Well,
1: thank you for inviting me,
0: thank you very much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Before you go, don't forget to check out the podcast sponsor, Tromplo. Tromplo is a animal training platform that was founded by Agnieszka Janarek, who's been on the podcast before. She's a really awesome dog trainer. And she's got loads of really cool online courses by people like Sarah Owings, who's also been on the podcast before. And I'm sure that they're absolutely fantastic. Just seeing the team that Agnieszka has put together I think the November courses that they have planned are going to be really fantastic. So make sure to head over to Tromplo. That's T-R-O-M-P-L-O. I'll put a link in the description and check out the courses they have on offer for November. And don't forget, you can join the conversation and have a bit of discussion about this over at the Facebook group Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. And leave a review for this episode if you can. That will be hugely appreciated. You can grab all the show notes over at nickbenja.com slash Simon hyphen See you guys.